ACP provides its 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, networking opportunities, and advocacy. Save $100 when you join ACP today and visit www.acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS. Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And Paul, this is a very special episode. I think we're calling this the S Gym, <laughs> the S Gym 2021 highlight reel. You think? What do you think about that title, Paul? No, it's spectacular. Not not very punny. <laughs> he says what it is. I, I like it. Well done. Seagum. Seagum. What? So you're hearing uh, a bunch of people Who's in the that background. Seagum, by the way, I Who's don't like that at all. That, that actually sounds all. like a bodily fluid. I Pittsburgh don't care for that. Oh, Pittsburgh. I think it sounds like a grain, like oatmeal with seagum. <laughs> Okay, we're, we're bleeding listeners. We are going to talk about a wide variety of topics today, everything from LGBTQ health. We're going to talk about reproductive health. We'll talk about hospital medicine, primary care pearls, perioperative medicine, and uh, yeah, just a bunch of random stuff. The highlights, the highlight reel from the conference we have a bunch of guest hosts with us who will introduce themselves as they pop up on the podcast. You've already heard Chris Chu in the background, so I'll, I'll save the others as a surprise. The great Dr. Paul Williams, would you tell people, what is it that we generally do on The Curbsiders? I mean, what we generally do is we are generally the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to renew clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, this, uh, I feel like you've already covered fairly well what we're going to be doing this time around, where we absorbed from experts via workshops and conferences and what feel like very high potency Zoom calls. We, we absorbed clinical knowledge and, and, and updates and all, all domains of medicine. And now we're going to bring them to you uh, in this very special episode. All right, Paul, we have a crew with us here live, but we also recorded with Becca Raymond Kolker, who is known from the Cribsiders and was helping us out at this conference. And they had some great pearls from the LGBTQ health episode, which we will get to now and then move on with the rest of the show. Paul, you, you hate the software because the, the countdown does, I, I don't know why it doesn't display correctly on your end. On my end, it's a straight six, five, four, three, two, one. Well, we're not clapping, which irritates me. And then it goes six, seven, <laughs> six, five, three. And then we start, which I also don't like. Just none of this well, is working well for me. Paul, if we're honest, everything irritates you. That's fair. <laughs> yes. Okay. But Becca has limited time with us. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Be I'll give you exhibit A. Becca has limited time with us. Becca, let's get to what was the first session you attended that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, definitely. So one of the my favorite top sessions from um, S S Gym S G I M. It's it's up for debate this year. Was well, we've talked about this in the past. Honest, okay. it's dealer's choice. Take your <laughs> <Okay>. pick. <laughs> um, S Gym this this year is the LGBTQ bootcamp for clinician educators. It was led by Chris Turndrup, Carl Street Jr., and Jenny Siegel. Great crew. 
And there were three takeaways that I thought were really valuable that I'm definitely going to carry with me. One of the first takeaways was really thinking about uh, LGBTQ healthcare in the context of trauma-informed care. So understanding that our patients that are queer trans bring some medical trauma with them, unfortunately. And so it's really important to have um, a trauma-informed care approach, especially in terms of the physical exam when we're taking care of these patients. And kind of thinking about the physical exam as a part of the medical encounter where we're going to come together for this shared goal of a safe and comfortable experience for all patients, including those with a history of trauma. And so one, you know, something that we can do to operationalize this is kind of like explain what we're doing and offer options around it. So if we want to do a physical exam, say like, this is in the context of something I'm worried about. This is what I'm going to do. Do you want to do it this way or that way? And kind of offer um, options if that's something that might be a concern for patients. So that was one really good takeaway, just remembering uh, your trauma-informed care approach for our queer and trans patients. Another key takeaway was around misgendering. So talking about how it's really important to acknowledge how negative and even dangerous being misgendered in the clinical space is for our patients. So what is misgendering? It's the experience of being labeled by others, by a gender other than a person identifies with. And this is a form of a microaggression. You know, microaggressions can be macroaggressions, actually, but it's really common. It happens all the time. And it contributes to this negative healthcare experience, as well as this kind of medical trauma, unfortunately, that, that sometimes patients experience. One thing that I thought was a really good takeaway was that it's not just verbal misgendering, so being called the wrong thing in the clinic by clinic staff or by, by the physician, but it's also paper-based and electronic misgendering. So that really makes us think about how can we change our systems so that um, we don't have uh, patients have to interact with this other forms of not just verbal misgendering. Another key takeaway around misgendering is that we really just need to practice. So um, they really uh, emphasize using pronouns that we're unfamiliar with, like just practice doing it verbally. If, you, if you're not really used to doing it, it just takes practice speaking out loud. Um, and then also incorporating it into your general introduction. So kind of coming up with a catchphrase that helps you um, kind of open up an inclusive space. So saying like, what name do you use? Or like, hi, my name is Becca. I use they, them pronouns. What do you like to be called? Um, what pronouns do you use? It's just part of our you know, normal introduction to any patient in any space and just kind of getting really comfortable um, doing that. We all have our own style. So that's something we can practice too. And then the third big takeaway was around binding. So this came up in one of our cases because it was a case-based discussion. Um, and some people in the workshop didn't know what chest binding was. Um, so chest binding, it also just known as binding, it's a technique that's used to create the appearance of a flatter chest. It could be often used by affirmed male or transmasculine non-binary folks. And they talked about how, you know, if you don't know what something is when you're seeing a patient, like modeling looking up things with learners can be a really great way to sort of show that you're an open clinician educator and also that it's okay to learn things, you know, as you're precepting um, with people that you're teaching. Um, that can be a really good thing. So in terms of resources for learning more about binding. They recommended this website called TransGuys, which has a link that we'll post in the show notes around safe chest binding. Um, so we can learn more there. And Sarah, I know you were at the workshop with me too. Is there anything you wanted to plug or any big takeaways that you had? Sure. Um, uh, it was a great workshop like you just described. Uh, one point I thought was really um, useful was in advising trainees who are giving a patient history to 
kind of gently correct course if the trainee appears to be kind of hyper-focusing on one aspect of the medical history. So specifically, the example they gave was a, a patient who came in, um, I believe, for, I think, like blood pressure medication adjustment or something. Um, and this patient had multiple different chronic conditions that they were managing, and he was also a person living with HIV. And so in the example, the the resident kind of really wanted to like kind of focus on the HIV medication and how to adjust those and um, and that may have been totally valid for that patient, but the uh, the speaker really gave a great discussion of how to kind of gently, you know, course correct, like I said, and also to think about what the patient needs in that moment and what they might have going on because the patient might not have 20 minutes for the resident to be in the back kind of like going over their medications and like deciding for them what needs to happen, you know, so really communicating with the patient, making sure that you're not keeping them there when they have a bus to catch or something. Um, I just really appreciated that, especially in the context of patients living with HIV, to kind of not forget about the rest of the patient and the rest of their concerns and needs to the exclusion of, of you know, something else. So, Becca, a lot of a lot of really great points there. Just to go back to the physical exam, when we did our episode with Megan Gerber, Dr. Megan Gerber, she mentioned using the language, I'm going to listen to the chest. I'm going to listen to the lungs. Can you open the mouth? Instead of uh, personalizing, you know, I'm going to listen to your chest. I'm going to listen to, or, you know, open your mouth, those kind of things, which can traumatize patients or re-traumatize patients. Paul, anything else that you, that you, uh, had to add? The point about misgendering in the electronic health record, I think is critically important. I think as, as organizations, you know, the, the road to hell paved with good intentions, like now they're generating inventories. And I think a lot of the times just to get through the medical record, just like, click, 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 click. And I just, just yesterday saw a patient whose gender inventory was aggressively incorrect. Like just everything about it was wrong. And it was like, oh no. So I, it's, I think just by trying to get through some of the inventories and assessments we have to fill out, the, the potential is there. So I think the the reminder to be thoughtful and ask the questions and then document things appropriately is, is really critically important just for safe and effective care. So that's, that's a really appreciated point. Yes, a certain very popular electronic health record that I have used at certain jobs <laughs> at Cashlack. It does display a preferred name, but it's like below the legal name and it makes it very easy to use the even just not like the name that the patient does not prefer. And that I have definitely had issues with that, especially if you're like printing out a list of, you know, your patients and you're meeting new people for the first time. Uh it's it's definitely not the greatest. So yeah, um, super challenging. It just, you know, it kind of when you look at it that way, you realize like all of the challenges that patients face before they even get in the exam room with you, which I think is a good takeaway for for medicine in general, right? So, mm-hmm. so Becca, any other take home points for this? I know you had some other sessions, and we, we might hit on some of the pearls because I know you're going to have to head off uh, in a moment here. But any final words to the to the audience before you're uh, at least for this time on the show? Any final words before you, you head off? Yeah, I think just to kind of go back to Sarah's point about just, you know, make sure that when you're when you're taking care of queer and trans patients that you you're aware of your confirmation bias. So, just because a patient is living with HIV does that maybe is not why you're seeing them, right? As their general internist or um, we talked also about a case of a patient on estrogen um, for gender affirming care who presents with a blood clot like don't just assume that it must be from gender affirming care. Like we still have to think about all of the risks of what could cause a DVT um, and don't be reductive about your patients. Just make sure that you're considering their gender as one aspect of their, their whole person. Mm-hmm. 
Listen up, primary care clinicians. If you've graduated or completed residency or training, you may be eligible for the federal government loan repayment programs. The Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, an HHS agency, is currently accepting applications for its National Health Service Corps, or NHSC. The NHSC loan repayment programs provide student loan assistance to medical, dental, behavioral, and mental health clinicians in exchange for their service in communities of need. Qualified clinicians may receive up to $100,000 in student loan repayment depending on the program, and new funding is available from the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan, which will allow the NHSC to award the largest number of clinicians in the program's history. Providers who work or who have accepted a position at any NHSC-approved site or treatment facility are encouraged to apply, and applications will be accepted through May 6, 2021, so don't wait on this. Visit nhsc.hrsa.gov to learn about the eligibility and application process. Once again, that's nhsc.hrsa.gov. All right, we've heard excellent pearls from Becca. We are now transitioning to our producer and correspondent extraordinaire, Sarah Roberts. Sarah Roberts, tell us what you learned. Hello. I'm putting on my NPR voice now. Um, <laughs> so This is actually not Terry Gross that's with us. I don't want... Oh, no. Yeah, Wrong podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, so I attended the uh, session Advocating for Equity, Removing Barriers to Reproductive Health Care in 2021. Um, there were a few great pearls. Uh, we don't have time to get into everything, but some of the highlights I wanted to share... First is from Dr. Sarah Merriam, and she talked a lot about contraception prescribing and the importance of making sure that if a patient wants contraception, you get it to them same day. So removing the barrier of having them come in for a pelvic and, you know, do STI testing and this and that, start same day um, as much as possible, make that a priority. She also recommended for oral contraceptive pills to prescribe a year's worth. Additional consideration that I I don't think Dr. Merriam mentioned, but that I will mention um, as someone who has used OCPs is if you can if your insurance covers three packs at a time, if you can prescribe for the pharmacy to fill three packs at a time or whatever the maximum is, that can also be very helpful. Otherwise, you're going month to month and it's just kind of a hassle. But back to what Dr. Merriam was sharing. So prescribing the 12 months, making sure you get the same day. And for people who want to get a long acting reversible contraception method like an IUD or an Exponon, you should be able to get them in for one visit and not have to have them come back. So again, trying to really minimize the number of times that a patient has to come in. And Sarah, um, I like, can sorry? I interrupt for a second? Yeah. I, I like that you made the point when you were telling us about this session that you felt as a woman that sometimes the clinicians would impose their preferred birth control method or push that on you. Yes. And yeah. I thought that was an interesting point. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, we were talking about that yesterday. I thought it was a great to see that the priority was really about giving the patient the opportunity to express what they needed and what they wanted for a contraception method and enabling them to get it and not pushing a certain method on them. I do think in the past, and I've worked in reproductive healthcare research off and on for almost 10 years, I do think in the past there was a lot of push to get patients on LARC, so on IUDs and Exponon. I have a lot of different feelings about that. Um, I think that we need to consider a lot of things when we, when we are recommending birth control methods. And efficacy is one, but it's not the only one. And ultimately, the best method of birth control is the one that the patient will use. So 
if an IUD procedure is preferred, that's great. But it can also be a very uncomfortable and painful process. It can also, I think, pushing or kind of emphasizing the need for LARC in communities that have a history of reproductive coercion. That's problematic and needs to be considered by physicians. And just in general, you know, again, to to reiterate, the best birth control method is the one that the patient is going to use consistently, whether or not that's a LARC or an OCP or if it's a barrier method. uh, The main thing is to help that patient get access to that method same day if possible and just help them um, help them to stay consistent on it by prescribing a year's worth, for example. Paul, my experience, I'm not sure about you, is that the patient patients come to my office and they know what they want already. They've mm-hmm. mostly, for the most part, they're not just like, what do you recommend? A, a right. lot of the times they're telling you what they do or don't want. <laughs> yeah, that exactly my experience. I, I think exactly to Sarah's point, I, I will see sometimes um, attorneys pushing more towards a lark, almost in part just for convenience sake. Like mm-hmm. if you, you have to deal Get with it and sort, forget of it, yeah. sort of refilling uh, prescriptions and, and sort of a lot of the counseling and stuff around it. So it's just easy to kind of refer out for it too. So I think it's, it's a great point. We also need to remember, like I take care of adolescents as well. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's uh, there still is a lot of patients without a lot of good medical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with that in mind, I think providers need to at least be very cognizant of making sure that when you're educating, you're giving them all the options available. Mm-hmm with the pros and cons as well. So just wanted to add that. Absolutely. And um, just to wrap up with a couple of other points that I thought were um, really important, Dr. Eleanor Bimla-Schwartz, she was discussing contraception, but also the ability of internists and primary care providers to prescribe medication abortion, which is a method that can be used up to 11 weeks, I believe, 11 weeks gestation. And so she said, you know, like internists manage medication. This is a safe and fairly uncomplicated process to manage for patients. And it's something that can be done uh, through telemedicine, which has become really a um, pretty key factor in caring for patients during COVID, especially. Uh, no ultrasound or procedural training is required. And you can order the pills for the patient. Um, it sounds like there, you know, there's additional resources for this for providers who want to learn a little bit more. There definitely are additional resources. Resources, I should say, it's basically pills, and they the allows the pregnancy to pass in one to two days. And since the vast majority of abortions take place at less than 11 weeks gestation, this is a really good option for patients whose contraception method perhaps did not work. And again, she just reiterated that internists do have a role in this in managing not only contraception, but if contraception method fails and there's unwanted pregnancy. Like there are pills for that also. And so I thought that that was a really great point and something that, um, you know, is, is valuable for primary care providers to to be aware of and to educate themselves on. Paul, do you think this is a good time to talk about your uh, you had some pearls as well for um, I guess it was also in the reproductive health realm or, w- or women's health realm? So more more of the stuff uh, I, I took was from the Women's Health Talk. I'm happy to throw some out there. I could do the whole shebang. I could actually talk about this for a full hour because it was just a jam-packed <laughs> session. So maybe I'll just touch on some of the bits from the updates in women's health, um, and then we can cut away and then cut back, um, and I, I can dump out more if, if we need to. But it was a, an amazing update. It was sort of this rapid-fire review of important articles that came out over the past couple of years, probably. And it was Bridget Dolan, Sarah Merriam, Christina Prifty, and Judith Walsh uh, were the ones who put this update together and did just a spectacular job. So I think... One of the things that interested me, I feel like we've all been in a situation when you're trying to decide whether to start a blood pressure medication or a statin. Like, I know we have the guidelines, but I feel like there are certain, there's always a gestalt that kind of figures into it too. And so they talked about certain um, women's health issues that are associated with cardiovascular risk. So first of all, 
they looked at um, an article that looked at migraine with aura or without aura and instant cardiovascular risk in women. And this is from an article by Kurth et al. on JAMA that looked at 28,000 female health professionals and looked at an outcome of major cardiovascular disease defined as a first MI, a stroke, or cardiovascular death. And the predictors that they looked at were self-reported migraine with or without aura versus no migraine at baseline. And after they, they looked at all the data, the things that you would expect came out. So things like tobacco use and diabetes conferred the most risk, no surprises there. But interestingly, migraine with aura, and this is, remember, one of the limitations, this is self-reported migraine with aura, had a cardiovascular risk uh, incidence comparable to a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 millimeters of mercury. So it's not nothing. So they, wow. you know, what do you do with this is migraine with aura confers cardiovascular risk. So if you are thinking about, should I start this blood pressure? Should I start this statin? And you're kind of waffling like I often do with most of the things in life. <laughs> this might be a potential... Um, risk modifier that you can kind of throw into the mix to sort of push you in one direction to be a little bit more aggressive with cardiovascular risk reduction. Along those lines, while I'm on this topic, they also looked at vasomotor symptoms and the genitourinary uh, syndrome of menopause. And specifically in terms of cardiovascular risk, they looked at the vasomotor menopausal symptoms and the risk of cardiovascular disease. And this is a pulled analysis done by Zhu et al. in the American Journal of OB-GYN in uh, 2020. They looked at 24,000 women from six prospective studies, and the outcome of interest was um, incident cardiovascular disease. And what they were looking for was, is there an association between either the components of your vasomotor symptoms, the timing of those vasomotor symptoms, and then the risk of cardiovascular disease? And it turns out that severe vasomotor symptoms and night sweats are actually associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, as is early onset of those vasomotor symptoms. Frequency of the symptoms is not associated. So basically, the conclusion they took away from is vasomotor symptoms can be associated with an increased cardiovascular risk. And it's not huge and whopping, but it's also real, at least looking at, the, at these data. So again, if this is someone where you're trying to look at the, the whole picture and trying to figure out how aggressive to be about cardiovascular risk reduction, assessing for vasomotor symptoms of menopause, when they started and how severe they are may actually help you make that determination. So I thought those were two interesting studies um, that are yeah, like risk factors. Cardiovascular risk. Yeah. And they're both two, two risk factors, I mean, migraine with aura and the, the degree of vasomotor symptoms, not something that I ever thought to think about as a cardiovascular risk. Exactly right. And I, and I think it's, it goes back to the other part, you know, we, we talked about this on one of our, our prior episodes, the, the genital urinary syndrome of menopause in terms of asking about it. I, I think I endorse that it's not something I ask about routinely and we should, so we should be sort of screening for those symptoms as well. So I think this is not a cardiovascular risk factor, but another point they made were the 2020 recommendations from the North American menopause society that we talked about that talked about education and screening peri- and postmenopausal women for these genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And then they, we talked about things that we covered on the show in, in prior episodes about lubricants and moisturizers being first-line therapy. But if those are not sufficient, there is great evidence for vaginal estrogen or DHEA or systemic estrogen if they have concomitant vasomotor symptoms as well. So that was something else that was brought up in this in terms of, as we're talking about sort of asking about symptoms that we don't typically ask about. Yeah. I think it would make sense, Paul, if you had other pearls on like women's health, reproductive health, just to include it in this section since we've been, uh, since we're on the topic still. Yeah. Let me fire through and then you can just give me the hook whenever you guys get bored of the sound of my voice, which should not take long <laughs> at all. But there's also, so they, they also covered bone health and then I'll get into actually some of the ones that are quote more fun, I guess. Um, but you know, I think we're all kind of vaguely aware of this risk for atypical femur fracture associated with bisphosphonate therapy. And this was looked at in a, a study by Black et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. They looked at Kaiser patients over the age of 50 that were using bisphosphonate therapy between one and 10 years, and they also looked at who developed atypical femoral fractures. 
And so patients using bisphosphonates for longer than eight years had a higher risk of these atypical femoral fractures with a hazard ratio that, that was significantly elevated. And then Asian patients are, are at higher risk than whites for this for, for happening. And then other risk factors that contribute to the atypical femoral fractures include a shorter height, a higher weight, and steroid use. But looking at this, in 10,000 white women treated for three years with bisphosphonates, 149 hip fractures were prevented versus two atypical femoral fractures. And even in Asian patients who had higher risk, for 10,000 Asian women treated for three years, they estimated that 91 hip fractures were prevented versus eight atypical femoral fractures. So even though there's a signal there, the absolute risk is low compared to the reduction in risk fractures. So it's, it exists, but that should not stop you from prescribing bisphosphonates in the appropriate patients because the hip fracture prevention is so much more um, noteworthy and impactful than this risk for atypical femoral fracture. So that was, that was the takeaway from that. Would you guys like to hear about hair dye and cancer? I, I want to hear about that, Paul. I think this, <laughs> I, I imagine this is one of the quote, fun ones that you were teasing earlier. I want to hear it. So uh, this is women's health, but you know, 10% of men admit to dyeing their hair. Probably that number is much, much higher. So this is not specifically a women's health issue, but they actually, 50 to 80% of women report using hair dye at some point. And so there was this concern that you know that occupational exposure to hair dye actually confers some kind of cancer risk. That's a probable uh, carcinogen. It's mm. unclear if personal use of hair dye does have any kind of risk at all. And so the nurse's health study looked at 117,000 women and looked at exposure, the age of first use of the hair dye, and then looked at cancer outcomes to see if there was an association with um, cancers or cancer-related death. You're waiting for the answer. Yeah. No, is the, is the big thing. Oh. So by and large, no, these things are not re related to any kind of cancer risk. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a signal. <laughs> I've been dying my hair since age nine, Paul, so, you know. <laughs> if you have light hair, there's a slight increase in the risk of basal cell carcinoma in women with naturally light hair. Um, and then they did see a slight increase in cumulative dose-associated risk with ER-negative breast cancer, PR-negative breast cancer, and ovarian cancer, and an increased risk of Hodgkin lymphoma in women with naturally dark hair. And these are these are small numbers. So overall risk, you can counsel your patients, it is safe and effective, but these sort of organ-specific cancers do actually warrant further examination were the takeaways. But overall, very, very safe. You should not be, your patients should not be um, alarmed about the, the risk of association between cancer and hair dye risk. Well, that's good and to I, know, Paul. Yeah, so it's you can die with impunity for right now. Wait, that that came out wrong. You dye your hair with impunity. <laughs> um, other important takeaways. I'll just power through a couple more. Uh, cervical cancer prevention. Um, there was a New England Journal of Medicine study relatively recently that looked at whether HPV vaccination reduces the risk of invasive cervical cancer. So reminder, these were approved because they actually reduced high-grade changes mm -hmm. and, and, and warts and things like that. But in terms of risk of invasive cervical cancer was not actually one of the approval indications for HPV vaccination. No surprises, but when they actually looked at a cohort of patients, it turns out, yes, that the reduction is 88% mm -hmm. um, of the instances of invasive cervical cancer if you're vaccinated before the age of 17. And so the, the takeaways from this is the effect size of vaccination is stronger in younger patients. So it's better to do it earlier than later, but also 50% of patients that get to an adult practice have not had their vaccination series completed. Mm -hmm. So ask about it, follow up on it, and do make sure that you actually uh, complete the series in your younger patients because the risk for invasive cervical cancer is reduced in patients who get the HPV vaccine. Paul, did, did they make any recommendations? Because I, I can't remember when, I think we talked about this on our cervical mm -hmm. cancer episode that up to age 26, the vaccine is approved, but be above age 26, it's a little bit more of a shared decision-making. And I think our guests made the point that if someone had been, you know, not sexually active and then became sexually active later in life, then it would, might mm -hmm. have more high yield. But a lot of the times by age 27 or above, they've, they've been exposed and it, it, it doesn't seem to 
confer as much benefit. I'm not sure what they said in this session. I, I don't think in the session they covered that with, with much detail and apologies to the presenters. They did cover it and I just uh, it drifted away for a second. But uh, doubtful. They were all very, very compelling, but not to my knowledge would be the short answer. Yeah. Has anyone um, run into issues with uh, insurance payment for those over 26? I often get that with, uh, hmm. especially my male patients, but mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone else has run into that problem. I have to say I haven't tried, but I, I again, maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I think that was another thing that the, you, you just have to, it's with, like with the shingles vaccine, in some cases, like for some of my patients, I have to, like, they have to check like what it's going to cost them before we go ahead and vaccinate just because of that concern. Well, Paul, I think we should move on. Sarah also had some other topics that she wanted wait, to- Wait, gabapentin doesn't work for chronic pelvic pain. <gasps> oh, oh, Okay. <laughs> Oh wait, we have some, and we and we have some more. Gabapentin doesn't work for things later, but uh, <laughs> yeah. thank you, Paul. That's <laughs> my great. favorite segment. Uh, for, for audience members, if you don't know this about Paul, he he loves pointing out things that gabapentin doesn't work for, which <laughs> is it is an ever increasing list, right, Paul? If I stop doing that, then worry about anhedonia, and you should probably screen a little bit deeper. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Does gabapentin work for anhedonia though? Probably not. Probably not, but I'm sure someone's using it for uh, to treat depression. Internal medicine is evolving rapidly to meet new healthcare and practice challenges. ACP keeps you current with the latest clinical information and practice resources to meet those challenges and be fulfilled. As a member, you get access to lifelong learning from world-class faculty. You can add your voice to their advocacy efforts and join their 163,000 members in a global community. There is a wide array of free or discounted member resources. Personally, I love ACP's clinical resources, especially their COVID-19 site. MixApp is fantastic to prepare for your boards. Their online POCUS modules are just great. So what are you waiting for? Post-training docs save $100 on their first-year membership dues through May 31st. Visit www.acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS. You can save $100 when you join ACP today. You know what, Paul? We were we were going to jump to Sarah, but uh, due to technical difficulties, let's let's go to the great Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Great middle name, great doctor, Justin. Please tell us what uh, what were some of your favorite pearls from this conference. It's great. I think the conference has been great. I feel like the virtual setting is like very different. We used to go to S Gym, and now I feel like S Gym is becoming more virtual, and it's coming to us. But it's been uh, a good learning experience. I went to one of the updates in primary care that talked about the top 10 studies over the past two years since the previous SGYM conference um, of how new studies have potentially affected how we should practice primary care. I admit that on these recordings, this makes me uh, very nostalgic and miss uh, my counterpart, Shreya Trivedi. Shrabies? The the Shray in the Shrabies. And so um, though no one can replace her as my improv class partner, uh, I'm going to need someone to kind of step in if that's okay. Who, uh, let's see, who Love has it. the highest kind of most energy, fun voice? Great. Paul. So, Paul, we're going to, uh, I have <laughs> I mean, a clearly, quick, I, there's, there's no other option. Here. A quick call and response to go over some of these things. So when I say SGLT2 inhibitors, what disease process do you usually think of? Heart failure. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well now, because you're smart, but typically SGLT2 inhibitors we thought were for diabetes, excellent diabetes medication. Turns out, Paul is ahead of the game, but in the DAPA-HF trial, SGLT2 inhibitors showed about a 25% reduction 
in worsening symptoms or heart failure death um, in patients with or without diabetes, which is a number needed to treat of 21, and a reduction in all-cause mortality by 17%, regardless of diabetes. So this is a landmark trial that is really showing that SGLT2 inhibitors, not just a diabetes medication, but is likely a heart failure medicine as well. And Dr. Berg, sorry to interrupt, but remind me, because I feel like there's been a bazillion of these SGLT2 trials. Is this systolic or diastolic? Um, uh, this, hef, 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 ref. This is hef, ref. This is for reduced ejection fraction. We still don't have any medicines for hef, pef. I mean, you know, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek. And and if people are are interested, we we've covered a bunch of SGLT two stuff. Just search SGLT two on our website uh, because we've we've covered that on multiple for multiple different topics, including how it how it improves outcomes in patients with CKD as well, with or without diabetes. So uh, you can check those out as well. All right. So our next study uh, was about cancer associated blood clots, PEs and DVTs. When I say cancer-associated blood clots, what medications do you guys think of? Oh, anoxaparin. There's nothing else. It's Beautiful, the only one that had Paul. any evidence. Am I right? There it is. That's what, <laughs> that was the leading question. Perfect, Paul. No, you're Sorry, completely I, I wrong. Sorry, I'm better now. Um, absolutely. So anoxaparin is the commonly thought of medication for cancer-associated clots, but there was a recent study on apixaban for cancer-associated VTE that looked at people with active cancer, gave them apixaban, and essentially showed that it was non-inferior to a anoxaparin equivalent uh, standard of care. Um, there was no difference in safety or mortality. And actually, the hazard ratio for a pitsaban for recurrence of VTE, this is for recurrence of VTE specifically, um, while it was proven to be non-inferior, the hazard ratio was actually 0.63 for a pitsaban. So a trend towards better, not statistically significant, not powered to, to look for superiority. But I think one of the big bottom lines is that apixaban is a safe and effective medicine for cancer-associated uh, VTE to prevent recurrence. And Justin, we when we talked about when we talked with your your old friend Dr. Michael Strife, I believe we talked about edoxaban was the first of the, of the DOACs studied for for this indication, and we, he was speculating he thought it would probably be a class effect. And I, I think what this this is adding to the evidence that there's probably a class effect with DOAX that they can be used for cancer-associated VTE. Absolutely. And I think that this is something that is kind of confirming what a lot of experts had said, including Dr. Strife from our previous episode. And the convenience of this obviously is so much better that you're not having to do injections, but able to take an, an oral medicine. Yeah. It's a good, good news for patients. Good news for patients. One quick study that we've talked about multiple times, it was already on our pearls, but recurrent cellulitis, way to prevent it, compression stockings. Compression stockings can help prevent uh, recurrent cellulitis. We're not going to go into it too much, but it's one of these trials that was actually stopped early because of the overwhelming superior results. And those always kind of really resonate with me. I like the idea of doing something that I have to stop early because I did such a good job. <laughs> Um, all right. Hey, uh, so team, when we think of atrial fibrillation, uh, rate control or with rhythm control, which is better? All rhythm all day. Oh, interesting, Paul. <laughs> you are ahead of your time, my friend. I was always taught rate control, rate control, rate control. This was old trials like the Affirm trial. But more recently, the East AF trial looked at early rhythm control, meaning doing rhythm control within one year of diagnosis of atrial fibrillation in a very specific uh, group of relatively healthy patients. Um, it was also stopped early for benefit because of a 10% reduction in composite events, including stroke and death, 
without any difference in um, other side effects. And so I think the bottom line here is not that you should be prescribing flecainide to everyone on with atrial fibrillation, but if it's early atrial fibrillation, you should definitely consider referral to cardiology to assess for antiarrhythmic therapy. One question you might ask that a person asked in the small chat bots of why does this go against previous trial studies that showed rate control was better than rhythm control? And one of the reasons that one of our excellent panelists talked about was actually this, this use of flecainide, that in the previous trials, the antiarrhythmics they used were a different group of antiarrhythmics. I'm not going to pretend that I have an expert in the all the classes of uh, antiarrhythmics, but about 50% or about uh, 33% of these individuals were on flecainide, which seemed to work out well. If you wanted more in-depth information, one great resource, the Cardio Nerds did a CARDS journal club, CARDS JC. Um, that you can find on their website that really goes through the entire, a great critique of the study um, and the outcomes. Justin, I you 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 mentioned the name of this trial, East AF. Do you East think they AF. have any idea they that that know. it implies a? <laughs> do you have any idea that it's now you know young people to them that uh -huh. would mean a totally different? <laughs> I don't know it's what you're really talking about. Really East. Man. I think, That's yeah. Super yeah. East. Okay. East. They've just right. out their stupid East. planet names, and now this is what we're left with. Now we're just all. <laughs> Uh, How are we doing on time? I got six more. Do we want to cut think, a couple? I think we're going to have to cut some of them, Justin. I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of great ones here. So maybe I, maybe I, you can pick out the ones that you think were the best. Yeah. I'll quickly go through a couple of the ones that we've already talked about, that the combination inhalers are shown to work just as well as the maintenance inhaled corticosteroids, that if you had point-of-care CRP, it could potentially help determine if you should give antibiotics to COPD exacerbations. Um and that I learned uh, the anthonacin criteria. Yes, uh, the which is yeah. always that's my favorite pearl from that study. Not so much the point of care CRP because we don't have that. The other ones we'll, we'll quickly go over. There was a treat trial that talked about intermittent fasting versus consistent meal time. Long story short, neither intermittent fasting or consistent meal timing really provided that significance in weight loss. About one percent weight loss, but there was no difference. So just eating three meals as opposed to doing this intermittent fasting, which is now the trendy way uh, of describing skipping breakfast, essentially. And, yeah, or also known as time-restricted time eating, where people time restrict eating. their eating to you know an eight-hour period or some variation during the day and fast for 16 hours. Exactly. And then the- but Justin, one, can I ask a follow-up about please, that one? Did they, Was course. there a- Because I remember maybe two years ago, and I think what even added to this craze of time-restricted eating was people had a- There was a New England Journal article saying that pre-diabetes and blood pressure and all these other favor meta, metabolic you know, panel changed favorably with time-restricted eating. Did they look at that as secondary outcomes- Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that because that was actually a major part of the study. There was no major uh, between group differences. And they looked at a lot of different outcomes. The only outcomes they really did find some changes in was there's a very mild decrease in diastolic blood pressure in the intermittent fasting group and a slight decrease in lean mass in the intermittent fasting group. But I've got to say, it's also one of those tables where there was like 50 outcomes. And so the fact that two were statistically significant 
was not overwhelmingly surprising to me. Yeah. I was surprised by the secondary outcome by the people who do um, intermittent fasting. That's actually the only thing they're physically capable of talking about. So I thought that was really <laughs> Yeah, That was statistically significant. I, you know, I, I would just, I, I am a little bit as sad about these results just because it's, it's free and it's a relatively easy thing that we could have implemented, you know, for the metabolic health of the population if it was, so I, you know, not to make fun of time restricted eating. I mean, I think it would it, it's it's a shame that it it doesn't seem to work at least in this in this trial. I'm sure we haven't heard the last of it though. I think I think others were shared your disappointment. Yeah. Other easily implemented things that may or may not be useful. Um bupropion and naltrexone and severe methamphetamine disorder? <laughs> you guys can no, it's a transition uh, that can work for anything. I was going to say with a high yeah, about the nighttime, but oh, you can always yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to, so I was going to, I was going to try to end with that. The, the, uh, I promise that I won't just ask if I should go quicker and then not go quicker. Uh, but I think one other trial just to put on people's radar that I was less familiar with is the Lodoco True trial, colchicine and coronary artery disease. The long story short is if people have coronary artery disease, which they included a CAC score greater than 400, which I think is a lot of people, there was actually a decrease in one of these composite outcomes for individuals with colchicine and coronary artery disease. But in all-cause mortality, while there is no statistically significant, there was a trend towards non-colchicine that if you look at the table, it's impressive. And so- Yeah, a trend towards an increase in non-cardiovascular death. Correct. A trend towards uh, an increase in non-cardiovascular death, suggesting that you would not, that colchicine might help a little bit in a composite outcome, but might lead to non-cardiovascular death, um, which is not a desired outcome. Yeah. So everyone should read more about Lodoco too, but colchicine- we did cover that on a hotcakes actually. Um, and, and we had a similar conclusion and that's probably cause Paul and I were like, why haven't we heard of this? And we, we think it's because that non-cardiovascular increased non-cardiovascular death has scared pe- this from becoming like quickly adopted. Hey audience, I am so excited to tell you that today we are sponsored by audible, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. Audible has so much more to offer than just audiobooks. They have podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive Audible originals that you can't find anywhere else. Their newest plan, Audible Plus, gives you full access to their popular Plus catalog, where you can listen to thousands and thousands of popular audiobooks, original entertainment, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of some of your favorite shows and exclusive series. Personally, I love Audible because, as you know, I'm always trying to catch up on the reading list. We get so many great book recommendations on the show, and sometimes I just can't read it all. But I can take it on the go with Audible. Personally, I have loved all of Malcolm Gladwell's audiobooks, Blink, Outliers, Talking with Strangers. If you haven't checked those out, please do that. It is fantastic, and Audible is just a great way to make your way through your curbsiders reading list like Paul is always saying he can't do. So, Paul, now you have no excuse. So what are you waiting for, audience? Try out Audible Plus free for 30 days when you visit audible.com slash curb or text curb to 500-500. That's audible.com slash curb or text curb to 500-500. So we had a couple other, some of these these updates sections were great where the 
the speakers went through, often the number was 10 different articles. And Chris attended the uh, Hospital Medicine Pearls session. Chris, and, and there were some of those that I thought were really practice changing and were certainly practice informing. So what what were some of the favorites? Just give us a couple of the ones that you really liked there. Yeah. So the, I, so the first case that we talked about in updates in hospital medicine was about the microbiology and aspiration pneumonia. This came out of a, they looked at a uh, Marin Coral et al. in chest January, 2021 at this multi-center um, point prevalence study, which looked at uh, patients admitted with CAP. And actually they found the anaerobes were rare. So this really is consistent with the ATS IDSA guidelines recently that changed saying that empiric anaerobic treatment is really unnecessary for a lot of these patients. And Paul, I'm not sure what you're seeing in patients that you know come into your clinic after they're hospitalized, or when I'm seeing when I'm working in the hospital. But this has been a slow. People have been slow to uptake this recommendation. Yes, like hundred percent. We know this it's now. Like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, so please, people, don't don't put your patients on Clinda just because you think they had a quote aspiration pneumonia. Um, that you, you know, as Chris was saying, anaerobes are are were rarely isolated and just. Covering for community-acquired pneumonia is is what's recommended. If they have multi-drug-resistant risk factors, as we've we talked about on a previous hot cakes, Chris, which you were part of, you know, then you can cover for multi-drug-resistant organisms. But uh, don't give your patient C diff just because they had an aspiration pneumonia. What, what, what else, Chris? I was going to say, speaking of antibiotics, another one, one of my favorite pearls, honestly, was looking at nasal screening for MRSA. You know, yeah. for years I've been talking to residents like, why are we doing the screening, you know, outside of like putting people in isolated rooms, which may or may not be necessary, honestly, these days. But they looked at a study from Morgan Hagen et al. from Clinical Infectious Disease from September of last year. And basically they found that if you did, did a nasal swab for MRSA, they found that there was a high negative predictive value, basically 96.5% overall. So the negative predictive value for MRSA in bloodstreams was 96.5%, intra-abdominal infections 98.6%, respiratory 96.1%, wound 93.1%, and urine 99%. So basically, with the high negative predictive value, they're saying, especially if you get it within seven days, you can basically rule out MRSA cultures in the hospital and likely avoid anti-MRSA antibiotics. Now, if you are positive, it's not as great. You know, the sensitivity isn't great. The positive predictive value is only like 24.6%, but I think it's a great way to sort of try to decrease the amount of antibiotics we're giving, especially for anti-MRSA empiric treatment. Yeah, because commonly what the the question that I would be asked by learners, and now I'm going to have to change my response, was, hey, the person had a uh, a MRSA swab that was negative. So does that mean we can stop their antibiotics we're giving them for this bacteremia or for this, you know, wound infection? And I would say, no, you know, we have to wait for the blood cultures or the wound cultures, because really the nasal swabs I was only using to rule out MRSA for pneumonias. But now it seems like we can actually extend this to pretty much the rest of the body or bodily fluids, which is uh, good to know. So definitely practice changing. That's a great, a great pearl. The there but, was no, no, for bacteremia, man, you go first. That's the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what makes me a little bit nervous. <laughs> no, no. I, but I, what I, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, that's true, Paul. I, I, I guess, uh, you know, interpret these results with your own. We'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. <laughs> with but, your own terror. I mean, there's yeah. still a 3.5% chance of having a bloodstream infection. So, I mean, you, you yeah. have to really decide your 
what your what level of comfort you're at. But I think and your degree of suspicion, yes. how how sick the patient is, all those sort of things. But exactly. I think this will hopefully help people de-escalate antibiotics quicker, um, get the patient off vancomycin, which is such a pain in the butt to dose and chase levels and and, and everything. The the other one that I wanted to highlight from this session, Chris, was and uh, you know part of it is just because it has a great name that I know uh, will hurt, hurt Paul's soul. Uh, the reality randomized controlled trial where they looked at restrictive versus liberal transfusions for patients with acute MI, and right. uh, this was from Ducroc Duc- in JAMA 2021. And they looked at for patients admitted with acute MI, should they, they would either transfuse the restrictive strategy was they would only transfuse if the hemoglobin dropped below eight and the liberal strategy, they would transfuse if it was below 10. So they were, they wanted at least a hemoglobin of 10 in the liberal strategy. And they looked at a difference in major adverse cardiac events. As you might imagine, the targeting a higher hemoglobin threshold led to many more transfusions, but good news for us and our patients is that the strategy of only transfusing if they were less than eight had no difference in major adverse cardiac events at 30 days. So I think more or less that's been what my practice has. So I don't know that this would be practice changing for me, but certainly we don't need to target a hemoglobin of 10 in patients uh, in the hospital with an acute MI, which is good to know. I think one of my favorite comments while they were giving this presentation was saying that also keep in mind, transfusion should not be based just on the number alone. So you need to yes. look at the patient as a whole, you know, are they actively bleeding? They have something else. I mean, is their coronary disease like <laughs> if really, really bad? If they're hypotensive and bleeding, yeah, right. Exactly. You might, you might right. want to transfuse even yes. if their hemoglobin's nine or, or 10. So at- baseline hemoglobin 15 and they're coming in with a hemoglobin eight. That might be different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, Maybe maybe I would give some uh, geriatric medicine pearls here. Um, no, you know what? Actually, I wanna I wanna go to some periop medicine pearls since we're since we're in the hospital here. I guess we're just we just did some hospital medicine pearls. I have some that go along with this. Paul, question for you. Uh, little little uh, Shravi's action uh, dynamic. Sure, Please direct Paul, all attention. What do you way. think about gabapentinoids and post-operative pain? They they gotta work, right? You're gonna want. I've never seen it fail once. I. <laughs> So, Verrett uh, et al. in Anesthesiology, the journal in 2020, they did a systematic review and meta-analysis of a bunch of trials looking at gabapentin or pregabalin for post-op acute pain. And Paul, you will feel very affirmed to know that they looked at acute pain up to 72 hours. They looked at subacute pain, which was a couple weeks, up to 12 weeks. They looked at chronic uh, effect on chronic pain and Patients who got gabapentinoids, they had uh, no no improvement in pain. There was no opioid sparing effect, which I think is what commonly like what, what we think we're doing when we give these medications. Sure. There was an increase in visual disturbances and dizziness, but it wasn't all bad news for the gabapentinoids, Paul. There, <laughs> Great. there was a, a notable decrease in post-op nausea and vomiting, though I think, you know, with the my concerns about the cognitive effects. Uh, especially, you know, you have a, a post-op older adult, you're going to give them visual disturbances and dizziness. Um, I, I think this should be something that you really question why you're giving gabapentin or pregabalin as part of your post-op pain cocktail. Um, any, any comments on that from anybody else? There needs to be randomized control between gabapentinoids and, um, alcohol swabs, right? For post-op nausea vomiting. <laughs> 
<laughs> like with the I feel like you're probably so distracted by your visual disturbances, you're just not reporting the nausea, or yeah. you're just not able to eat because you can't actually find your food. You're so dizzy, you're just, just staying in bed, not yeah. doing anything. <laughs> and and Paul, this this next one that I wanted to talk about from the Periot Medicine Pearls session, uh, which I, I don't have a lot to say, but they they did a modified Delphi process, and they came up with consensus recommendations on perioperative cannabinoids and. So there, there's now recommendations out there, Paul, for you, if you want some light weekend reading, that uh, they, they talk about patients who are using CBD, THC, or any combination, and thinking about how this might affect your perioperative management plans. They said, I think the usable stuff that they said was, you might want to consider adding additional post-op nausea and vomiting uh, prophylaxis. The anesthesiologist might anticipate needing to use different doses, maybe higher doses to achieve the appropriate level of sedation. And then if you, you could consider weaning them if you're at least seven days away from the OR, but they would not recommend weaning them if you're much closer, especially if you're like a day away from the OR, just tell the patients to continue them as they, as they usually do. Did they, um, did they mention the topical applications? I feel like that's actually what I see the majority of my patients are using just because they're accessible and don't need uh, certification, at least per Pennsylvania guidelines. Have you seen, it was, they, they comment on this or is this all sort of the systemic stuff? You know, they didn't, they didn't get into that part of it, but uh, we'll link to it so you, you can, you can look into it and- uh, I'll do some homework. This is right up my alley. This is right. I knew it would be right up your alley. And then finally, what I think is more usable, um, more usable information for us is that, so Paul, I- when you're when you're in clinic seeing someone with cirrhosis, do you have like a typical scoring system that you use that you rely on to uh, figure out like their their risk as someone with cirrhosis? Not with any kind of consistency, no. Right. So, I mean, typically what I've been doing is just like, oh, they have cirrhosis, uh, they're they're at higher risk, and I do my normal pre-op evaluation. But there's actually um, the the VA uh, the VAS quip. Um, so not the ACS NISQIP or uh, score, or there's I believe a Mayo Clinic score for uh, that that deals with cirrhosis. This was uh, specifically validated in about 4,700 U.S. Vet- veterans with cirrhosis. This was by Mahmoud in Hepatology in 2021, and they looked at this Vocal Pen score. You can check this out yourself. It's a very easy calculator to use. It's at Vocal Pen P E N N score. Dot com. That's vocalpenscore.com. And this score can help you predict 30, 90, and 100-day mortality in your patients with cirrhosis who are going to be going for an operation. The speaker recommended using this in addition to your normal perioperative assessment so you can, you can better counsel the patients or the surgical team. And it used things that we would readily have available to us like a serum albumin, their bilirubin, their platelets, the ASA score and uh, whether or not they have uh, NAFLD or not, or or I guess we're now calling it MAFLD, Paul. Yeah, and I was, I was going to ask you about that, Matt. Did they comment specifically on the MAFLD? Because I think as as former uh, hero Dr. Matherly talked about, like MAFLD is often seen in combination with other stuff, right? Like you can have metabolic system right. liver disease with hep C or with alcohol use and like how why is that a, an important discriminating factor? Did they comment on that at all? They, they didn't go that deep on the tool, but it was it was just a yes or no checkbox in, in when you're when you're calculating the score. The same as like, is it emergency surgery or not? And then selecting the type of surgery, which also would adjust the risk. So I thought that was a really cool calculator. It it's been validated, and it seems like it's something that people could start to use. And it it's it's more tailored to the patient with cirrhosis than um, previous calculators that were available. So 
Let's get back to Sarah. Sarah, you attended a session on caring for the Muslim patient. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, Before I do that, though, I do want to add a quick addendum to the discussion we were having earlier about reproductive health presentation, specifically about medication abortion. I feel like I kind of fumbled that. So just very quickly, uh, medication abortion consists of two types of medication, mifepristin and misoprostol. Mifepristin stops the pregnancy from growing. Misoprostol basically helps um, the uterus evacuate the pregnancy. And uh, something I thought was really great in that presentation is there was a graphic that shows to scale how large the products of conception are. So basically, it's a great guide for informing patients um, kind of what to expect in terms of how far along they are um, and what kind of tissue may appear. So the takeaway for me was that up to eight weeks, the amount of tissue is about the size of a quarter. So I think that that's actually a helpful metric for, for providers to kind of give their patients a heads up of what to expect. So back to the caring for the Muslim patient. This was a wonderful presentation by Dr. Umna Ashfaq of University of Florida. And so I know we don't have a ton of time. Um, I do want to quickly say, you know, there's so much diversity in the cultural backgrounds of Muslims and in the practice of Islam. So she said this herself. And so there's no universal set of recommendations. Um, There are some aspects of culturally appropriate care that are important to be mindful of. And, you know, again, her talk was super comprehensive. It touched on everything from spirituality and end-of-life care to considerations for sexual and reproductive health, and also the importance of being aware of and honoring Muslim patients' diet restrictions and rituals of prayer. As a side note, Dr. Ashfaq gave a great pearl about broaching STI or sexual and reproductive health concerns for her patients. She used the key phrase, I ask this of all of my patients or I do this for all of my patients. So I think that was a great takeaway was just to normalize um, asking about things that might be kind of um, sensitive or private is, again, to just say this is something I do with all my patients. So I wanted to focus on two particular topics that Dr. Ashfaq discussed. Uh, First, Muslim patients who fast for Ramadan, and then Muslim patients who complete the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. So just for folks who might not be aware, Ramadan is a holy month in Islam. This year, Ramadan began on April 12th, and it ends on May 12th. Um, I think that's correct. Uh, If not, I will correct it in the show notes. And during Ramadan, observant Muslims will fast from dawn until sunset. And fasting in this case refers to abstaining from both food and water. There are exceptions to fasting for Muslims who are elderly, sick, pregnant, nursing, or menstruating. However, uh, it appears that the majority of Muslim patients with chronic conditions do choose to fast. So Dr. Oshfaq cited the 2020 Creed study, um, and that reported that 94% of patients with type 2 diabetes actually fasted for at least 15 days and um, approximately 64% fasted every day. So we're talking about a majority of patients who are Muslim, even if they have conditions that might make fasting a little bit more risky or might, you know, complicate things, they're still going to fast. So it's important to address that with patients before Ramadan, ideally, uh, and come up with a plan. And Sarah, you, did you recommend, did they recommend specific, because I think what would be, what would be pertinent for the audience is if if we have patients and we're trying to tell them, let's say they're on long acting insulin, Mm -hmm. did she give specific like numbers, how you might alter that or what to do with the mealtime, like prandial insulin? Yes. So um, rather than kind of getting into all the numbers that she cited, because I don't want to make a mistake, I'm going to recommend consulting the evidence-based recommendations that were put together by the International Diabetes Federation in collaboration with the Diabetes and Ramadan International Alliance. So there are actually really comprehensive recommendations for this, and it includes every class of um, diabetic, every class of medication for diabetes and has study citations, flowcharts, dosing adjustments. Um, If you have to 
up or down by a certain percent, timing. There's a meal before dawn called suhoor, and then there's iftar is the meal in the evening. So timing according to those meals and kind of how to um, adjust if, for example, if a patient is supposed to take a medication three times daily, you know, if that's possible to move to twice daily or once daily. So these recommendations are really comprehensive, and we will link them in the show notes, along with some additional recommendations for medications and chronic conditions besides diabetes that often overlap with diabetes. So cardiovascular disease, thyroid disease, folks who want anticoagulants, things like that. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really amazing document, and there is actually quite a bit of literature on this, so that's the great news. And you were also going to tell us a little bit about uh, particular concerns for patients who are completing a pilgrimage and, yes, and what, yes. what we might need to consider there. Yes. Um, so Hajj is the religious practice of making the pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, it takes takes place over the course of about five or six days. Um, in 2021, it's going to be from July 17th to July 22nd. So just something to keep in mind that it is coming up this summer. Um, and from a religious perspective, it's expected that every Muslim will complete this pilgrimage at least once in their life. So Dr. Ashfaq recommended counseling patients who are going on Hajj much the same way you would counsel patients in preparation for Ramadan. And one of the points she emphasized is that the Hajj involves a lot of physical activity. It is a great deal of walking and, uh, you know, patients need to be kind of prepared for and healthy enough to complete all of that walking safely. As a side note, I Based on my own brief research, it looks like many Muslims who um, utilize wheelchairs or mobility aids do complete the Hajj. Um, it can be a little bit tricky sometimes. Um, so that's another thing for providers to consider just logistically and making sure that patients are prepared and are accommodated. So Dr. Ashfaq recommended that patients be counseled on proper foot care. So including a daily foot inspection just to check for signs of infection or any, uh, any problems. And also hydration is a big one. So hydration and protection from the sun. The patients should be bringing ample supply of medications, wear identification bracelets for medical conditions, recommend that patients do not skip meals and that they check blood sugar and eat carbohydrates prior to physical exertion. So all of these uh, are, are really important considerations and you might have additional recommendations and topics that you talk to the patient about based on their personal health history and any um, unique risks or concerns. Another big risk with Hajj is communicable disease. There's a very high volume of people in close contact, and there have been limitations put on Hajj uh, due to COVID. So I believe the Saudi, Saudi Arabian government limited the number of people who can um, attend Hajj, uh, at least last year. And they do require COVID vaccination for Muslims who are attending Hajj. So uh, the immunization component is really big. So uh, Dr. Ashfaq noted that all COVID-19 vaccines that are approved in the U.S. have been deemed halal. So they've been deemed acceptable um, from a religious perspective. There is a recommendation to get Hep A, typhoid, and, and flu vaccine prior to Hajj for patients who are 65 or older with comorbidities. Pneumonia vaccine is also recommended, and the patient should probably get a Tdap if they haven't had one in the past decade. Um, and I am wrapping up here, I promise. So other major considerations are hygiene, so face mask use, hand sanitizer, um, in terms of anticipating potential uh, gastroenteritis. You can consider prescribing a course of antibiotics in case the patient gets severe diarrhea. Patients should carry loperamide um, also for that reason. And for female patients of reproductive age, you want to start an oral contraceptive prior to Hajj, so about a week prior, and continue through a week after. And this is important because menstruating patients cannot perform tawaf, which is one of the principal uh, rituals or rites of Hajj. Men who are performing Hajj will typically shave their heads during one of the rituals in the pilgrimage. And this can carry the risk of bloodborne illness. So Dr. Ashfa's recommendation 
is to only go to licensed barbers, you know, to let patients know just to give them a heads up about that. And uh, finally, patients should postpone Hodge if they've had a recent MI or they're high risk for MI. Um, heart failure patients at risk for exacerbation or arrhythmia. COPD or asthma patients at risk for exacerbation. Advanced kidney disease, uncontrolled hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes, um, if the patient is immunodeficient or actively has cancer. And finally, with limited mobility or high fall risk, another thing to take into account just to make sure patients are protected and safe. And Sarah, do we have uh, resources that we'll we'll link to for yes. both of these, like yep. uh, guidelines that, uh, because this, yeah, very, I mean, lots of- It all makes perfect sense. I would have thought of none of it on my yeah. own. So like, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. So nice to actually, like everything you said, like, well, of course, but like, I would not have thought of that independently, or at least not without a lot of careful consideration. Yeah. So it's so nice to have this all assembled in one place. Yeah, it's yeah. a great it's presentation. Great. I will definitely be linking more resources in the show notes. Um, and I will reach out to Dr. Oshfak and ask if we can link to her right. slides. And if and if you're listening and uh, you have uh, you went to the conference, you can go back and listen to this session if you hadn't hadn't heard it already. Which is mm-hmm. something that I think I might be doing myself because it seems like just like a lot of really good stuff that I I should know more about. Mm-hmm. Chris, I believe to to wrap things up here, we were gonna we were gonna talk about a little bit of young adult. Uh, young adult medicine pearls, which which we we probably don't talk about enough on the show. We are internists, so sometimes we're taking care of patients eighteen years or older, and uh, I'm always I'm actually more scared taking care of like a someone who's in their teens or early twenties than I am someone who's in their like nineties. <laughs> so please tell us what to do. <laughs> yeah, so I I ended up going to the updates in young adults uh, session. It was it was partially co-presented by one of my colleagues here at, at Ohio State, um, Dr. Chris Hanks, and we had a couple of really interesting ones that they brought up um, really quickly. So we actually delved into a little bit into COVID nineteen, which we really haven't talked about much in this recap. Um, but uh, we talked about Miss A, which I don't know. I think a lot of people have heard of Miss C, which is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome for in children, but now that that we're seeing COVID, post-COVID cases, we're looking at Miss A, which is the adult version. So it's actually very similar to Miss C, but basically the for the diagnosis, you have to be over 21, you have to have severe illness requiring hospitalization, evidence of current or previous infection, but no pulmonary illness, and then elevated inflammatory markers. But, you know, looking at these, they, they pretty much are extrapolating treatment to similar to Miss C. So they're doing Kawasaki cocktails, including IVIG, high-dose aspirin, plus or minus steroids. Maybe you're treating the infection with anticoagulation, remdesivir, uh, convalescent plasma, or anakinra. So they don't really have a lot there, but I thought it was interesting that they brought that up. Um, Another topic they talked about was, you know, now we're talking about um, a lot of our post-COVID patients, patients who've had COVID, either asymptomatically or mildly symptomatically, and we're looking at athletes. So we do know that you know COVID-19 has been implicated in a lot of uh, myocardial inflammation, even in asymptomatic patients. So you know they brought up a couple different studies, one including from Raj Paul et al. from JAMA Cardiology in, uh, in September of last year, where they actually had 15% of the athletes in their study, although there was only 26, um, they had MRI findings consistent of myocarditis. And two of those patients actually had mild symptoms, and two of them were asymptomatic. So there's a lot of discussion on what do we do in terms of screening for these patients, but it's still, you know, not great evidence basis. There's, it's mostly, you know. So it's just a consensus guideline? Yeah. So it's mostly, they don't even have a consensus guideline. A, they have multiple different guidelines, but there's some perspective ways of which you could look at it. So you could have symptomatic. So basically 
targeted based on their symptoms. You can have asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic. So you could only you could consider cardiovascular testing prior to return to play, but it may actually not be necessary. So we can link to it in our show notes. People can take a look at it um, and see what right. they think. But I think there's still a lot to learn about this. Like I said, this this last that study that I talked about from Roger Paul only had 26 people. So. I think we have a lot to learn, and uh, this this is obviously an area that in right. pediatrics we've been talking about a lot in terms of return to play. So, um, it's we'll, we'll find out more. Yeah, right now, I don't know what to do with that information. Like, it, 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 two of the patients had asymptomatic myocarditis. So like, I'm sorry, you're very sick. Like, <laughs> I feel fine. Like, no, you can't. I believe exactly. Like, do we stress test them all? Do we need to do PET scans? Yeah. Like, it's really hard and getting in the weeds. And so, definitely, people go back and forth about how aggressively we got to test these patients. So. Um, it's just something we need to be, we might have more updates in next year. But sort of the big topic I really wanted to talk about from the updates in young adult health is about adults with Down syndrome. And this was actually really interesting because apparently we've never had evidence-based guidelines. It was all expert expert review. So um, they actually went through, they did evidence-based guidelines, and of course they evidence-graded all of them. But there were a couple of different things they found out they decided to recommend based on these, uh, what they've seen. So a lot of the recommendations are similar to the general population. So, you know, still screen for ASCVD at, at appropriate times. You know, you can use the ASCVD risk calculator, but there are some differences is like for diabetes, you should start screening for diabetes in asymptomatic adults at age 30 versus I think the current recommendation is 45. For adults with Down syndrome and obesity, consider screening at age 21. So I think that was one interesting difference. Um, another thing they talked about was cautioning diagnosing with Alzheimer's dementia for those adults with Down syndrome who are less than 40 years of age and really consider other diagnoses first. But then after they turn age 40, really you should be screening annually for Alzheimer's. So I think that's something that's very specific to Down syndrome that I think people need to recognize, as well as some new recommendations that were outside of other recommendations that were before was one for mental health disorders. They really think that to diagnose someone with Down syndrome with a mental health disorder, you really have to go by DSM-5 criteria, DMID-2 criteria. And then if you do diagnose it, you really should refer to a clinician who's experienced with Down syndrome. Um, refer for uh, congenital heart disease to cardiologists for periodic evaluations. Hypothyroidism screening at age 21 with uh, repeat screening every one to two years. And then the last one, which I think most people will recognize is, you know, back when, you know, I'm a pediatrician, but still, the the big pearl that comes out of my head when I think about Down syndrome is you have to worry about atlantal axial instability. And so, honestly, for years, you know, I've had patients with Down syndrome in my training, and if they're getting ready for Special Olympics or something, we always got cervical x-rays. But the big guideline change here is that cervical x-rays should not be done routinely. So that was my favorite pearl out of the whole thing. Maybe it's that you're med peds, but I have zero recollection, like outside of, I, I mean, like the... I think the instability thing I think of for patients with rheumatoid arthritis getting uh, anesthesia. But Paul, is this one that you were aware of? You probably were. I was. It was, but it was one of those things that was in the Flotsman Jetsam, like those, you know, Down syndrome, atlantoxidable instability, like those two <laughs> things sort of floated around together in the same domain of my brain, but I didn't know what to do with them. But it, I'm I'm heartened to know that I don't need to be aggressive with imaging. So that's that's exciting. Justin, what do you got, man? Come on. Not much on the downturn. I definitely yeah. have done the x-rays for atlantoaxial instability. And in fact, I think the special Olympic screening forms, uh, there's a checkbox for that. So I don't know that those are uh, updated. But uh, no, I think this is amazing. And I, too, was amazed that this is the first time there's been any evidence-based guidelines, although it made sense that we don't refer back to Down syndrome care guidelines. So this is great. Awesome. 
This has been a deluxe episode. Thank you for listening. I'd like to say uh, that it's it's always a real pleasure to go to SGM and uh, Paul. We've we've talked about this before, certainly off air a lot. I think you know we're highlighting the clinical pearls of this conference, but this conference specifically, I feel like everybody at the conference is just so much cool, doing such cooler things than what I'm doing. Uh, there's just people doing like the really important, challenging work. And it, it, it's always such an inspiring conference to attend. Paul, I, you speak better than I do about these kind of things, but I, I just wanted to say that uh, it's always inspiring um, to, to attend this conference. It's it's one of my absolute favorites. And, you know, it's we, we highlighted the clinical pearls, obviously. I think we probably didn't do justice to how much there's an emphasis on social justice and sort of looking at social determinants of health and what we can do about them and what advocacy looks like from physicians. Um and then also from the education component, like there's a really strong sort of medical education undercurrent through all this as well. So the clinical stuff, great. We love it. We know it. And that's what we're here to help provide. But I feel like the SGM also kind of scratches a number of other issues that are, are obviously really important to me as a doctor. So like I just it's one of my absolute favorite conferences. The work that everyone's doing is so impressive. The plenary talks, which we didn't talk on, were spectacular. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I think the one yesterday maybe just want to run laps around the hospital like it was just so inspiring and exciting and it, it just so it's just it's a terrific conference that i i think they managed to preserve the spirit of fairly well even though we've been doing it remotely and it's different than sort of being all together and talking together so it's this has been a great experience for me i wanted to point out like all the work um and for people who were not able to make it to the conference um check out cp solvers because their presence was very well known at this conference especially a lot of um, people who were working with CP Solvers at one point, team members, uh, adjacent team members. Um, so I would definitely check out our colleagues over at CP Solvers too, because they had a great uh, presence here at SGM this year. Specifically, the the uh, anti racism podcast crew that uh, gave the presentation yesterday morning. All right. Well, Paul, I think it's time for the outro, and uh, we will be back in the future with more content but paul we we have to say goodbye do we is is the phrase designated yummer is that canon uh-huh. now has is that <laughs> yes. included in this episode or indeed <laughs> this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole mm, yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> so good, Paul. I'm not sure how to feel about that. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for the mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, but to do that, we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send a, an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A special thanks to our CME partner, VCU Health Continuing Education. We don't have time to make this a CME activity, but please look out for most of our weekly episodes, which are available for CME credit for free. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Uh, I've been Sarah Roberts. Great strong work all. And we would be remiss if we did not thank uh, Stuart for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind our sweet, sweet voices. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. A thank you and goodbye. <laughs>